of sermons from Zephaniah and Nahum and Habakkuk, all of whom prophesied during the days prior to Judah and Jerusalem's downfall before the Chaldeans, also known by us today as the Babylonians. Every one of these uh, prophets we have found have had messages for us from the Lord that have applied as much to our own lives as they did to the day and place in which they originate. An eloquent uh, testimony, by the way, to the uh, fact that the Lord causes his word to live from generation to generation. Habakkuk has wrestled with God in prayer. He has asked the harder questions and received even harder answers. Having pled for justice among the people of God, God answered with the vision of an invasion of a desperately wicked army, the Chaldeans in judgment against them. And then asking the Lord how he could do such a thing, God has answered with the certainty of his judgment on the one hand and of salvation on the other for all who live by faith in him, the righteous on the other. Well, now the matter is settled. The wrestling is over, and yet Habakkuk and we have to step back and survey the landscape of God's dealings with men. And doing so, we must learn to measure all things, as Habakkuk does, against the backdrop of the certainty of the coming of God's glorious and devastating judgment. To the word, but first to prayer. Father in heaven, we pray your blessing upon your word, that indeed you will cause it to live and rise from this page, and for our lives to be conformed to it by your Spirit's working in us. Teach us, lead, and direct us in all goodness and truth, we pray, our Father, for you are good and righteous and just altogether. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Habakkuk chapter 3, and we'll pick up at verse... God came from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? Or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You sent out for the salvation, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed 
the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled in the sea with your horses the surging of mighty waters. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. May God give you grace and me as well to hear and to tremble and to quiver at the sound. Do you hear it? Do you hear it coming? Have you seen it in the word? Have you heard it in the battle songs of the kingdom we sing, even in this house of worship? The judgment comes. The fierce anger of the Lord against all who disobey him, it is coming and it will come. And coming it will be glorious. And for those who have rebelled against him, God's judgment will be devastating. Habakkuk knows that judgment, one of the judgments in a series of judgments that have marked the course of redemptive history until the coming of the great judgment at the last day, I say Habakkuk knows that judgment is coming. And to understand how terrible it must be, he need only scan over the previous judgments of God from which he compiles this description of the coming of the Lord upon rebellious Judah and upon her enemies. We could spend the entire morning pondering image after glorious image and metaphor after devastating metaphor that Habakkuk uses to describe this judgment But before coming around to applying this text to our lives today, we'll consider just one of those images of judgment, the light. Habakkuk envisions the coming of God's judgment, and it comes in the form of unspeakably intense light, piercing and flooding. Because it is alone the purest, most brilliant element in the created universe, Habakkuk and others too, David and John and Paul, speak of God's glory in terms of light. Though it is, even at its most powerful, still but a a relatively useful uh, description, really, of the judgment and of the glory of God. Upon coming in judgment, God's brightness, verse 4, is like the light, rays flashing from his hand. Now, at first in verse 3 there, he sees the magnitude of the light from afar, covering the heavens and filling the earth. Now he sees that light concentrated and rays that flash from God's hand. It is the picture, you see, of the of the concentrated power and glory of God, which he yields, uh, wields, rather, as his judgment comes. And indeed, brothers and sisters, as he most surely will in judgment. 
It is the picture of God's readiness for action. It is not merely the light of a, of a specter, something to put us in awe, to inspire awe among us. This is the light of the active, the powerful, the fearsome God who comes with light to establish his kingdom among men and nations. And then as if this were not enough to beggar our imaginations, Habakkuk says in verse 4, did you catch it, that there his power is veiled. It's hidden. There is the hiding of his power is what he's been describing. Rays of unapproachable glory stream from his hand. What then, asks one commentator, what then must be the nature of this power and glory hidden in his clenched fist? Unapproachable light. That's what Paul describes God's glory as in the letter to Timothy. God dwells in light unapproachable, and yet that light is approaching us. In its penetrating power and its destructive force, it is coming to us, every one of us, on the day of the Lord yet to come. Now that's but one of the images, of the pictures, of the coming, of the judgment given by the Holy Spirit to Habakkuk. We've not even begun to touch upon the others, the pestilence and plague, the affliction and the anger, the crushing and the piercing. But do you see now why the whole thing, this entire picture made Habakkuk sick? Do you understand why rottenness entered into his bones and his legs trembled at the sight? And do you see why yours and mine must do the same? It was terrible judgment that Habakkuk saw coming upon the wicked and even upon the apostate, those who were once numbered among the people of God, but but who by their rebellion against him brought down upon themselves the very same judgments, only worse for their having been members of God's covenant, only then to reject it. I say it was a terrible judgment that came in the form of, I mean, upon Chaldea and upon Judah. But at its worst and at its most intense, it was but a tiny foretaste of the judgment of God yet to fall, and that forever, upon all who are not found in Christ at the day of his coming, at the final judgment. I fear for you, and I fear for myself, that we have not felt the burden of these things sufficiently. So let us learn from Habakkuk now to do this. Let's learn to weigh all things against the coming judgment of God, to watch for the judgment of God, and to wait for the judgment of God. First, friends, let us learn to weigh all things against the judgment of God. As Habakkuk looked around himself, as he saw the injustice and the sin committed even by those who called themselves the people of God, as he surveyed those wicked, unbridled in their wickedness, the enemy soon to come upon them, and as he considered his own heart, he learned to see them all 
against the backdrop of judgment. He learned to weigh everything and all of these things against the scales of the justice of God. We forget this, don't we? Far too often we forget the inevitable end to which all things must come. We think far too often of our lives in terms of ourselves. We think of the way things affect us, our own lives, our own comforts, our own standard of living. These are the ways we, these are the ways we measure things against the immediate effect on our happiness or our welfare. I will confess it. I think you must too. Or every once in a while, something crashes into our lives like jet airplanes into mighty towers or wind and waves upon nations. And for a moment, we step back, don't we? We step back and we, for a little while, we ask the bigger questions and struggle with them. War comes, disaster strikes, and we come out of the shells of our own private worlds for a time. And then, given time, we return to the smallness of our vision and to the temporal. But you see, those disasters, those are nothing. They are as nothing compared with the events that lie just beyond the horizon for us all, and especially for the enemies of God. Yet we hardly think of it at all. And we hardly weigh the matters of our lives against them. In 1939, October 22 of that year, C.S. Lewis lectured a large group of Oxford undergraduates. The war had begun, and remember these were people for whom the horrible memories of the first war were still freshly on the mind. Everyone was distressed, terrified of what lay ahead, and because Lewis was a Formerly a soldier and a university professor and a Christian, of course, it was thought that he might have something useful to say, something helpful, and so he began with this. A university, Lewis said, is a society for the pursuit of learning. As students, you will be expected to make yourselves into philosophers, scientists, scholars, critics, historians. And at first sight, this seems to be an odd thing to do during a great war. What is the use of beginning a task which we have so little chance of finishing? Or even if we ourselves should happen not to be interrupted, interrupted by death or military service, why should we, indeed how can we, continue to take interest in these placid occupations when the lives of our friends and the liberties of Europe are in the balance? Is it not like fiddling while Rome burns? Obvious enough questions, but Lewis goes on. Now, it seems to me that, what, that we shall not be able to answer these questions until we've put them by the side of certain other questions that every Christian ought to have asked himself in peacetime. I spoke just now of fiddling while Rome burns, but to a Christian, the true tragedy of Nero must not be that he fiddled while the city was on fire but that he fiddled on the brink of hell. 
You must forgive me for using that crude monosyllable. I know that many Christians these days do not like to mention hell even in a pulpit. I know too that nearly all references to this subject in the New Testament come from a single source. But then that source is Christ, our Lord himself. These overwhelming doctrines are not really removable from the teaching of Christ or of his church. If we do not believe them, our presence in this church is great tomfoolery. If we do, we must sometime overcome our spiritual prudery and mention them. The moment we do so, we can see that every Christian who comes to a university must at all times face a question compared with which the questions raised by the war are relatively unimportant. He must ask himself how it is right or even psychologically possible for creatures who are at every moment advancing to either heaven or hell to spend even any fraction of the little time allowed them in this world on such comparative trivialities as literature or art, mathematics or biology. If, a hu if human culture can stand up to that, it can stand up to anything. To admit that we can retain our interest in learning under the shadow of these eternal issues but not under the shadow of a European war, would be to admit that our ears are closed to the voice of reason and very wide open to the voice of our nerves and of our mass emotions. For that reason, I think it important to try to see the present calamity in true perspective. The war creates no absolutely new situation. It simply aggravates the permanent human situation so that we can no longer ignore it. Human life has always been lived on the edge of the precipice. Human culture has always had to exist under the shadow of something infinitely more important than itself. Now, can't you hear something of Habakkuk in all of that? Having seen a, a, a glimpse, even just a glimpse of the judgment to come, that prospect of impending judgment changes everything, colors the whole picture. The coming of the judgment of God simply must alter our perspective on all of life. It must give us a true meaning for everything we think and see and say. It must be that thing against which we weigh everything else in this life that we will, every one of us, one day stand in the flood of that unapproachable light to be searched by that light and to have every deed and every thought and every word, whether good or evil, exposed and judged and either rewarded, as in the case of those who are in Christ, or eternally punished, as in the case of those who are without. And knowing that that judgment will not fall nearly so hard 
so devastatingly and punishingly hard on anyone as it does on those who, like Judah, like Jerusalem in Habakkuk's day, bore the mark of God's covenant in their bodies, whether circumcision in their day or baptism in ours, but who rejected that covenant and its laws. That's the point of this history that Habakkuk traces there, beginning at verse 3. God's coming from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, the plague in verse 5, the sea in verse 8, the writhing mountains in verse 10, the sun and moon standing still in verse 11, and so on. God is tracing the path of his people whom he has called to be holy, just as he is holy. He's tracing the way that he has brought his people out of their captivity in Egypt, out of the land of slavery, through pestilence and plague, across the sea on dry ground, to Mount Sinai where he delivered to them his law, and then to the promised land in remarkable triumphs. I say he's coming along that same path to visit vengeance upon all who stand rebelliously in his way, even if that should be Judah herself. He is no respecter of persons. If his own people be not holy, as he has called them to be holy, then like the wicked they will fall under his judgment. So let us learn today to weigh all things in our lives against the coming of the judgment of God. Like the point C.S. Lewis made, let us learn that the measurement of our lives is not against this moment of our little lives or this day in our lives or even this day in the entire globe. No, the measurement of our lives must be against, always against, the eternal, against heaven, against hell. Second, let us learn to watch for the judgment to come. That's what Habakkuk did. Verse 7, he saw. Verse 8, verse 16, he heard. The coming of the judgment was in his eyes and in his ears. We don't know, of course, when the judgment of Christ is going to come. It could be today. It could be 20 years from now. It could be 200 years from now. It could be thousands of years from now. We don't know, and the Scripture speaks plainly about the fact that we cannot know. But yet, we must watch for the coming of that day, keeping that judgment in our eyes. It's always been a great engine of sanctification in the lives of the saints. Before the Apostle Paul's eyes, the judgment was always to be found. The constant anticipation of the resurrection of the just and the unjust, which led him, he said to Felix, always to take pains to have a clear conscience before God and man. Christians watch for the coming of judgment. Aim high in steering. We heard this over and over and over again. My driving instructor told us in class, and then when sitting next to us in the car driving down the road, aim high in steering. It was the wisdom that said, always watch for what is coming far 
in the distance. Even if it is far in the distance, it must, it simply must govern the way you drive now. Same for our lives, Christians. Aim high in steering. Keep your eyes ahead, even if far ahead, for the ground you survey will come to you much faster than you can possibly imagine. Watch and pray. Third, wait for the coming of Christ in judgment. Verse 16, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Now we've considered at great length some weeks ago this doctrine so widely taught in the scripture of the Christian life, the doctrine of waiting upon the Lord, so we won't consider it at length today, but to consider only that there are two marks of our waiting for the coming of the judgment of God here spoken of. First, Christians wait fearfully for the judgment of God. By which I mean, of course, for those who are in Christ, you must wait with reverence and with holy fear. Why? Because the scripture says judgment begins with the house of the Lord. We Christians will be at the head of the line on the judgment day. And we will be judged more strictly. We will be judged according to the light we have received. God is holy, and he has called us to be holy, just as he is holy. And it will be nothing less than his holiness in all of its perfection that will be the standard by which our lives and our every thought and our every deed will be measured. What terrific seriousness then must mark our lives, Christians, knowing that we must all stand before the holiness of God. This is what set Habakkuk's bones to rotting. The glimpse, and it was but a glimpse, the brief veiled flash of the holiness of the Holy One coming on Mount Perrin that Habakkuk saw and then passed on to us caused him to shudder. But it is not only fear that must mark our wait for the coming day, Christians. We also learn with Habakkuk to wait, second, with confidence, with quiet confidence, for two reasons. For one, the coming of the judgment of God, while it will be a fearful day, even for us, it will only be a day of trouble and calamity for our enemies, for those who, verse 16, invade us. For God's enemies and for ours, there will undoubtedly be nothing but trouble and calamity and despair. John Donne thought of their damnation this way, What gnashing is not comfort. What gnawing of the worm is not a tickling. What torment is not a marriage bed to this damnation to be excluded eternally, eternally, eternally from the sight of God. 
Dante, you remember, sees the gate over the entrance of the entrance to hell, which says, Through me you pass into the city of woe. Through me you pass into eternal pain. Through me, among the people lost forever, all hope abandon ye who enter here. You may be confident, Christians, that all of this terror will fall upon the enemies of God. Only worse, for the most eloquent lines of any language fail to touch the terror that will fall upon those who terrorized God's people. But we may also, and finally, wait with confidence for the coming of that day, because it is a day of salvation. It is a day of wonderful salvation for the people of God. When he comes, verse 8, he comes in his chariot of salvation. For the salvation of his people, verse 13. That day for which we wait, brothers and sisters, it is a day of terror for those who are outside of Christ, for those who are his enemies outside and even inside the church, but for the righteous. Ah, for the righteous who live by faith. It will ultimately be a day of delight, of joy, of praise, and of life. When we step from this life into the rest of eternal life. Now Christians, watch for it. Wait for it. And in the meanwhile, weigh every matter against it. For judgment begins with the house of the Lord. Amen.